Hello, and welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who are behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. There's this famous photograph of a man in the middle of a street facing off with a line of tanks. He's wearing a white shirt and black pants, carrying a bag in his hand, and just standing there with these four tanks stopped right in front of him. Can you picture it? If not, try googling Tank Man and Jeff Widener. That's W-I-D-E-N-E-R. Look familiar now? Well, there are multiple versions of the so-called Tank Man photo, but Jeff's was the most widely circulated. He was a photojournalist at the Associated Press, and when he took this shot on June 5, 1989, it was syndicated and printed on front pages all over the world. Since then, it's been included in Time Magazine's collection of the 100 most influential photos in history. Jeff has been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and people like me have been chasing him nonstop for interviews. Well, it's my pleasure. This is the first uh, interview I've done in about a year. I've, I've taken sort of a vacation from interviews because I get so many requests, I get a little bit tired doing the same thing. But uh, I thought, what the hell? I'm here in Mexico City now. We just moved, my wife and I, and I got more time on my hands with this virus going on. So I said, why not? Let's do an interview. For Jeff, dreaming about getting that iconic shot started early. Well, when I was a kid, I used to look at these iconic photos in the Time Life series, you know, and there was the Hindenburg crash. You had uh, the uh, napalm photo by Nick Ute in Vietnam, you know, and and so when I was a kid, you know, about 12 years old, I used to look at these photos and imagine, you know, one day what would happen if I had a photo like that. And it was decades later, while he was sitting in front of his computer one day, that an article popped up in front of him. It said, top 10 most memorable photos of all time. So I was looking at all those pictures I told you about, the iconic photos, the Hindenburg, Yalaniku, the uh, Kent State shootings, all these iconic photos in black and white. And then a splash of color came up, and it was the Tank Man photo, Jeff Widener. So what is this photo even of, and why is it so important? How did it nearly cost the photographer his life? And what was it about a hotel balcony, the kindness of a stranger, and a chicken at an airport that made it possible. Today, we're talking to Jeff Widener, formerly the Southeast Asia picture editor for the Associated Press, to find out. We'll talk to Jeff about moving his way up in the photojournalism industry, sneaking into China at a time when the government really didn't want reporters around, and the story behind the famous photo. We'll also chat about getting desensitized and sometimes even risking your life as a war photographer, censorship in modern-day media, and what everyday consumers of the news, like us, need to know. So, let's begin. Why don't you take us back to the beginning, Jeff? Tell us about how you got your start in photography, uh, when you got interested in it, and when you started to think, I want to make a career out of this. When I was a kid, I used to like to draw. So I was always getting in trouble from my teachers drawing uh, German bombers in, in classrooms. Yeah. And I was really into it. And I wanted to be an artist until uh, I saw a book on Leonardo da Vinci. And then when I looked at that, and I remember reading that he could draw perfect circles. So I tried drawing a perfect circle. And 
I failed miserably. And I think it was after that I realized that my days as an artist were, were a bit doomed. But I was fascinated by cameras, the mechanics of cameras. I, I mean, it were just some, my father um, had a friend named Lee Weiner. He was a well-known Life magazine photographer. And he came to my house when I was about six years old. And he opened a trunk full of camera gear, and it just fascinated me. And it was right after that that I was, uh, I was really crazy about cameras. And, of course, I, I used to go to the, to the uh, department store, and I always bugged this camera guy to look at the cameras. And uh, he would, get, you know, he would, he would sort of intolerate this kid, you know, and they'd give him the camera to look at. And I was always doing that. And then that sort of led into me getting into a photography class in high school. Um, my first high school photography teacher was Harry Eibach. He looked a little bit like Wally Cox. And I was wandering around the halls and, 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 um, and, and outside the classes. And he comes up to me and he sees me with his Top Gun Auto 100 camera. And I said, you want to see a junkie camera? And I show it to him. And he looks at it and he says, that's, that's not a bad camera. Have you enrolled in my photography class? And I said, well, I tried, but they said it was full. And he said, okay, when can you take it? And he signed me up. And so I got into this photography class, and uh, I didn't have any money back then. You know, we were just a middle-class family, and I was on my own pretty much. And so I lied about my age. I was 15 at the time, and I got a job at Jack in the Box working an Ill illegal night shift from 10 at night to late in the morning. <laughs> and all I could do was, uh, well, I was be cooking the, on the grill, the cheeseburgers and tacos are flying everywhere, and I was working alone. But I always had this Nikon catalog with me. I was always looking at the latest Nikon F2. And, okay, every two weeks I can get a lens. And that's all I concentrated on. And finally, like in, in the Cleveland High School in um, Northridge in Southern California is where I went to school. And so I was the only kid in class that had Nikons. Everybody else had, like, Mirandas and cheap cameras. And I and I was in, I had Nikon glass. I was paying for expensive color prints and in my senior year, um, I heard about a school named Reseda High School. That was a wealthier area. They had more money. And I went down there to talk to the teacher, and they had a photo salon. And they have it yearly. And, like, I was blown away by the quality. And some of these students, like Gil Smith, Ron Contarse, Jay Silver, all these guys have gone on to be really great photographers. And I got transferred in my senior year. And uh, that got me the Kodak National Photography Scholarship in 1974. I beat out 8,000 students and I went to Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, and Europe. And the funny thing is, is I failed all my classes because I had two color classes, two black and white classes, and a PE class. So I didn't go to the PE class because I was in the darkroom printing and uh, I was spending all my time just doing photography. So they failed me, pulled me from the graduating list, and that was right when I won the scholarship. Well, they, the counselors were all yelling and screaming at me. You know, you got to get your act together or you're not going to graduate. And as soon as I won the scholarship, magically I graduated. So that was the course I set in college. And I got in the college newspaper in uh, Los Angeles Pierce College in Woodland Hills. And that's where I started with my basic newspaper training. When did you start working for the AP? I was hired in 1987 as a Southeast Asia picture editor. That was a huge position. I mean, it was a big deal. I had the whole Southeast Asia region, but I was traveling all over Asia, China, uh, even in parts of Europe. So it was uh, it was a great job. I'd already worked for UPI in, uh, in Brussels for three years. I'd worked on uh, Miami News. 
the Evansville Press in Indiana. The Whittier Daily News is my first newspaper. So I basically was moving my way up, you know, small paper, middle-sized paper, you know, moving upwards until I eventually got my big break at uh, UPI in uh, Brussels. I was, my, you know, foreign correspondent basically at 22. Did you ever get to a point where they were paying for all the equipment that you wanted? I'm, I'm imagining that the AP didn't want their uh, photojournalists flipping burgers at Jack in the Box to, oh, yeah. to afford their lenses. Oh, no. I had everything I needed. And my uh, Asia photo editor, he, he used to come down to Bangkok. And, uh, you know, first thing we did was we'd go out and hit the bars and uh, he would have suitcases full of gear for me all the time. It was like Christmas every time we rolled into Bangkok. Let's talk about China. By the time Jeff joins the AP as their Southeast Asia picture editor in 1987, the country is just over a decade removed from the death of Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution. It's ruled by the Communist People's Republic of China, and against the backdrop of economic trouble, there's been a growing call, primarily led by university students, for reforms like freedom of press, funding for education, and transparency in government. And it's the death of one controversial political leader, Hu Yaobang, on April 15th, 1989, that provides the spark. Yaobang was forced to resign his post as the party's general secretary back in 1987, and many students now take his side. Three days after his death, thousands of Peking University students march on Tiananmen Square, the city square at the heart of Beijing. As the weeks go on, the protests grow. Demonstrators occupy Tiananmen Square, more foreign journalists enter China to document the events, and the government's response grows stronger. On June 3rd, the Chinese army, the People's Liberation Army, is directed to enforce martial law. And the tanks begin rolling into Beijing. In the city streets, one in particular, Chang'an Avenue, soldiers and protesters clash. People are killed on both sides, and in the middle of it all is this tall white guy with a camera. I, I know that the uh, the story about getting into the country in the first place when the protests were going on. Uh, there's a, I mean, there's there, there's already a fascinating story there. So why don't you why don't you take us to that point in time? Tell us about getting into the country. Yeah, well, this you know you had these protesters. Uh, that started massing near the Tiananmen Square. And I've been monitoring it on television and our news wires. So that's not my region because that's more up in the Tokyo's region. They were up in the north of China and uh, some parts of our London uh, jurisdiction. But I knew they'd probably call me in because it was a huge story. You had Reagan and Gorbachev in there uh, and, and they were meeting. That was the big story. And um, that had been going on. And then the, they had these demonstrations start so I just took it upon myself to go to the Chinese embassy and apply for a journalist visa. So there was a lot of people. It was pretty hectic. And uh, this was in Bangkok. And I went to the door and I sort of kind of weeded my way through all these people. I mean, that's one of the things in Asia. For some strange reason, if you're a big white guy, you, you, you seem to be able to push your way through things. Normally you couldn't. And I got to the desk and there was... Uh, this vice consul guy and he was wearing a black suit, black tie. And, and, and the weird thing was he comes up to me and I never talked to the guy, never introduced myself, but he knew my name. And he said, Mr. Widener, it would not be convenient for you to go, go to China right now. Now think about that. I've never met this guy and he knows who I am. That's bizarre. 
So uh, I said, okay, fine, whatever. So I knew that they didn't want me in. So the next thing I did was um, I decided to go to Hong Kong. And uh, I knew I had to get rid of my passport because I had previous Chinese stamps. And if they saw it, they'd know I was a journalist. So I went to a small Malaysian um, uh, travel agency and I said, I'd like to take a tour to China. And they said, are you sure you want to do a a tour right now? I said, oh, yeah, I've been wanting to go a long time. So (laughs) we... um, I, uh, I went to the U.S. Embassy and I say I lost my passport and the woman just looked at me and she's kind of gave me this look. And she says, it's funny how uh, all these journalists are losing their passports suddenly. <laughs> and so they gave, they gave me a new passport and I, I went to the Malaysian uh, travel agency and uh, they got me a book through the, uh, I think they call it the Chinese Tourist Bureau. And that's where most people go to get their 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 um, tourist visas into China. So I had a tourist visa to get in. New York AP sends me a telex and he says, "Oh, Jeff, why are you there? We'd like you to bring chemicals, color chemicals, another Leafax machine. I'm bringing a 600 millimeter lens. I mean, I had literally all this gear, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not I'm not going to look like a tourist. And I was really starting to sweat bullets because I just assumed I'd be arrested as soon as I arrived. And I get and I, and I get there and I'm standing in this long line and there's like several rows with these steely-eyed looking uh, customs officials and I'm pushing my two carts through and I'm just going oh my god they're going to pummel my kidneys in the back room and just as I get right up to my customs guy there's this loud screaming and racket about six counters down on my left. And I, all I saw was feathers flying through the air. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that? And there's a lady, an old lady, holding on to a chicken with their, you know, for dear life. And all the customs guys ran off to this lady with her chicken. And I just pushed the carts right through these automatic doors to a taxi. And I went to the AP office. So I was breathing a sigh of relief, I can tell you. <laughs> so tell us about after you get into China. Uh, the days leading up to um, the famous Tank Man picture, you were on the ground. Tell us about what you were experiencing, what you were seeing. Yeah, it was. I had my routine basically. I'd get up about six o'clock in the morning, and we had another photographer named Lu Han Xing, and he was our New Delhi photographer. He was a Chinese American, and uh, basically, Lu and I would just go out and shoot whatever was going on in the streets. And I would head to the square, and uh, I remember the sun rising above the, you know, the goddess democracy, which was very similar to the Statue of Liberty that these protesters had been making. Uh, It was, and then occasionally you'd get all these Chinese soldiers coming in to try to do some maneuvering, and all the protesters would get circling around these army trucks, and the the soldiers were pretty nervous. You could tell they were nervous. Even though they were armed, they were nervous because you got a, you know, 100, 200,000 people around you it doesn't really matter how many weapons you have because they're going to they're going to take you out in a minute so there was this nervous tension that i was photographing so somebody had to pull a night shift and we drew straws and so i was the lucky one and I went out that night of June. I was actually the late, late, like just before midnight, I think on the 3rd to the morning hours of the 4th. And I rode my bicycle with one of our um, reporters 
Dan Beer. And uh, as we were riding down the Chang'an Boulevard, I could see it was very quiet and peaceful. There was nothing going on, but I had this unsettled feeling. And I told Dan, I said, Dan, I got a bad feeling about tonight. And he says, what do you mean? He says, I don't know. I just, I just got a gut feeling. And all of a sudden, people started kind of coming out in the middle of the street. They were kind of quiet. They were taking these steel road dividers and putting them inside of the, the street to block the advance of military equipment. And then I heard this loud crashing sound of metal, like bam, you know, and then you could hear the, the engine running I and mean, you could smell diesel fuel. And the people are running around the corner towards us. And I'm getting all freaked out. Like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? Because I'm no hero. You know, I'm not, a, I just, I've never been a hero. I'm a white knuckle war photographer, you know. And then around the corner comes this APC, armored personnel carrier, so fast that these uh, sparks are flying off the treads. And I ran off to the side and dived in and just pancaked it on some ivy. Dan ran off, dropped his bike. I don't know where he went. I never saw him again after that. I think I saw him in the office later, but not that night. And then I, I started running after the crowd. And I said, wait a minute, what are you doing? You're running after these guys. You're running after an armed APC. And it was like, I'm running one way. And, and there's another part of me that's running the opposite direction. And all of a sudden I got this like, bam, it hit me. You know, like, Christ, I could get killed in this job. You know, guys with guns, you know. And then I got a little bit nervous. I know I'm jumping around here, but I'm just trying to get to you to the fact where I'm not uh, some guy like Eddie Adams going to be running out there looking, dodging bullets. I'm trying to stay alive. So I'm chasing after these guys. And then the students, they cornered it at the gate of the Great Hall of the People. And they're throwing rocks and they're on top of it cheering. And I'm getting my pictures. But I notice I'm running out of batteries. I'm running out of film. Now, this is a tough choice. What do you do? Do you stay and get a few more images or do you get back and refill with film and batteries? So I made the decision to go back. And as I was coming around the corner of the Great Hall of the People, there was another armored car that was on fire and it was coming towards me. And I looked for my, um, my medium telephoto lens. I was using Nikon gear back then. But I couldn't find it because I must have dropped it in the ivy. So all I had was a wide angle lens. It was a 24 millimeter. So I had to go literally in front of this tank head on with a, with a flash and a 24 millimeter lens. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be committing suicide if I do this. Because think about it. I mean, there had been buses stopped by protesters that had weapons in them. How did the Chinese soldier, how did the PLA, People's Liberation Army, know whether or not my flash was gunfire or a flash? Did they really care? Because they're on fire roasting inside this thing with a mob of people shouting and screaming. And I'm thinking they're going to panic and start shooting. But there's a side of me that has to get the pictures every time. You know, I got to get the pictures. I'm very competitive. So I shot the picture. But by this time, my flash is hardly recharging because the batteries are almost dead. So I go around to the side of this burning armored car and there's people throwing stuff. And I take a picture. And then somebody grabs me from the side and pulls up my camera strap. And another person's grabbing my camera, uh, my jacket. And and I'm like panicking, like they're going to tear me apart. So I just pull my American passport up, put it above my head and screamed American, American. And then whoever was the leader of the pack 
he got uh, the crowd quiet and he looked at my passport and then he says, you photo, you photo. And I look on the ground, there's a dead soldier curled up behind the uh, armored car. So I took the picture and then I got up and they're pushing me back down. You show world, you take picture. But I don't know how to explain to them that I have no more battery power. So I get up and finally I kind of go through their legs of this mob and they started arguing, arguing among themselves. And I came back to get a picture of the burning armored car. There was a guy on fire next to me. He's burning alive. And I'm, and I'm taking a picture of this guy burning and there's somebody trying to help him. And just as I'm ready to take the picture, something hit me in the face. My neck goes back. I kind of blank, blanked out for a minute. I look down. The whole top of my camera's ripped off. The flash is gone. My lens is gone. Blood's all over me. And that camera saved my life because it had been some cheap plastic camera like a Nikon. Uh, I think it was a 8008 that came out later on. Uh, it, it, I would have been killed. And then the back of the armored personnel carrier opened up and one of the soldiers had jumped out and he put his arms above his head and he's to surrender. And I still remember to this day how pristine his uniform was, how well ironed it was. And the crowd then moved in with pipes and they had all kinds of stuff and they started beating on him. And I tell this story often, but it's, it's really amazing because the second that happened, I thought I'm going to lose the Pulitzer Prize because I don't have my cameras not working. And at the same second, I'm also singing this poor guy's going to die. So these two things hit me. I mean, I thought you should be ashamed of yourself because this guy's about to die and you're worried about Pulitzer. What do they tell you when they hire you about about that tension? Like, do they say, no matter what, preserve yourself first, save yourself? Or, um, or is it just you like internally that it's like, I want to get a picture at all costs. What do they, what do they tell you when they hire you as photojournalists? Look, you, you work for these news agencies or newspapers, whoever you work for, what do you think they want? They want you to get, they want you to get the goods. They want you dead. No, they don't want you dead. In fact, it's going to be a problem for them. You know, it's, it could be a liability or they could get, you know, any number of problems. They don't want you dead. And if you're dead, you can't do any more shooting. So basically, you're on your own. Yeah, you got to you got to call the shots and decide what you're going to do. Um, I always remember the movie. Uh, I think it was Salvador, and the guy says to be good, you got to get close. Well, that's true. You know, I've come very close many times. I was almost kidnapped by the Khmer Rouge. I mean, I've almost crashed in Russian helicopters. You know, you just have to hope it's not your day. But there's no way to train for that. You just got to go by your gut instincts. How much can you get away with? You know, how far can you push it and still get out alive? Yeah. I've heard the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, during your time as a photojournalist, did you feel like you kind of got, um, was there any kind of desensitization, the, just the amount of carnage that you saw, the, the things that you shot images of? No, I don't get desensitized, but I still can get shocked. I mean, there was a time when uh, there was a, a Vietnamese airline crashed in a rice paddy outside Bangkok, and I had gone out there on the back of a motorcycle to cover the crash. And there was a bunch of Thai photographers taking pictures of something in a doorway of the plant of the jet. And I couldn't quite figure out what was going on, but I was coming more and more around the tail section. 
And finally, I saw it was a doctor with a mask and he's holding up a, a leg and it was a white leg. So it was probably a diplomat from Australia or something. But he's holding up a leg and the photographers are all taking pictures of the leg being held up. And I, I couldn't take the picture. I mean, I just there's no there's no newspaper is going to run it anyway. But I that's stuck in my mind. You know, that just like sometimes the, in Asia, life is so cheap that and it just sometimes. Yeah, maybe you do get desensitized. I don't know. I just, it's like I was preparing myself for all this, and so I handle it pretty well. I don't have any post-traumatic syndrome or anything. I mean, I've had, I wouldn't mind going doing some of that still today once this mask and this virus thing's over with. But, um, you know, I'm not a kid anymore, you know. And I, you know I can't go running around with all my pills flying out of my camera bag and you know, trying, trying to find out where my reading glasses are. <laughs> After that horrifying night on June 3rd, Jeff eventually made it back to the AP office on the morning of June 4th. He went back to his hotel for the day and recuperated. And now it's the next morning, June 5th. Let's talk about the day of the Tank Man picture. How did you get to that vantage point in the hotel? Well, you know how I, I drew the small straw? I drew it again. And I was the lucky guy that had to go out. It's funny, you talk about concern about... Uh, about uh, your media's uh, publications, you know, about how they feel about you going out and risking your life. Well, anyway, we get this telex, and it's from AP News Photos, and they say, we don't want anybody to take any unnecessary risks, but if somebody could please photograph the occupied Tiananmen Square, we would appreciate it. So, you know, yeah, don't kill yourself, but kill yourself. Knock yourself out. Get the picture. And uh, I had to get another bicycle, and I got to tell you, I was just – I was so scared. I was a nervous wreck. I really was a nervous wreck. I was going through definitely some post-traumatic stress at that time. I'm not going to deny it. And to have to ride a bicycle about two miles down the Chang'an Boulevard, and I thought, okay, I got to do it. I got to do it. So I get on the bike, and I'm riding down. I hide my camera gear inside of a Levi jacket. I got a 400-millimeter 5.6 lens. It was a very slender lens. It was very handy. And that was in one pocket. I had a teleconverter, little teleconverter, TC301. It was another pocket, filmed in my underwear, and um, I had another wide-angle zoom. And so I'm riding my bicycle, and outside, you know, there's a, the plate glass window of the restaurant has been blown out, shot out, and uh, there's still some guests in there getting breakfast, but it's up, just all taped up. And on the street, there is uh, lots of rocks and bricks, and there's smashed bicycles, but there's no troops or anything and i'm thinking well this isn't too bad so i'm pedaling along and all of a sudden um as i'm as i'm pedaling uh, i'm coming to an overpass a big overpass that uh was going like uh an intersection of four different roads and all of a sudden there's a tank barrel that starts coming over the horizon as i'm pedaling towards it I'm saying, no, 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 no. And then I see another tank barrel coming off to another street and another tank barrel, four tank barrels with soldiers with their bodies above the turret holding on to high caliber machine guns. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I don't believe I'm doing this. And I'm pedaling my bike and I go underneath the overpass, but they can still see me. And there's a few people riding around on bicycles. And then I hear gunshots coming from back alleys. So tanks. Gunshots coming from back alleys, 
bloodstains, smashed bicycles. This is this is not what I wanted. And I just kept pedaling. It seemed like an eternity. And I was also worried about once I got to the hotel, because there were rumors that journalists were getting electrocuted by these uh, cattle prods if they didn't give up their notebooks and film. And I get to the hotel. Uh, now they changed the name. It's no longer the um, Beijing Hotel. And I went, and there's, there's these guys in the white suits that everybody was talking about, the white, like, overalls. And I parked my bicycle, and I walked through the lobby, and it was all dark inside. And they started coming towards me, and I see this uh, this young college kid. His name's name Kirk. And he was an exchange student. He was in the in, inside of the darkened um, reception area. So I walked up to him like I knew him. And I said, uh, hey, Joe, where you been? I've been looking for you. And I said, I'm from AP. Can you let me up to your room? And he says, yeah, come on. He picked it up immediately. And I looked behind me. And the guys in the overhauls that were coming to me, saw the, they thought we were together. And they turned around and left me. So we go to this elevator. And we're coming up. And it was really slow. And he says, Man, you're lucky you got here when you did because a truckload of soldiers just came by and they shot a bunch of uh, tourists in the lobby and they dragged their bodies back and I had to hide behind a taxi. And I'm going, Jesus. So I get up to the room. And I was exhausted. Remember, I'm sick as a dog, and I'm really not feeling well. And I basically crashed on his bed, and I got to take a rest for a minute. And every time I'd hear a noise, like there'd be a tank come down the street, and I'd be pushing the burnt buses out of the way, I would come up and take a few pictures. Now, on the balcony, we had a balcony, and it had a metal railing. And on that metal railing, uh, there was a section under the bottom of it where you could see through. So I would try to shoot through that bottom railing, but I couldn't stick my head out. The only way to see the Tiananmen Square is you had to stick. I had to push my whole body over the balcony about six floors above the ground. And, around, and I had to put my head around the wall that was jutting out. So I would try that, but I would hear gunfire occasionally. And so I was concerned about that. And I turned around. There's a bullet hole up in the wall just right near the door where you use the sliding doors. You so I just it reminded me, you know, you're not safe in the balcony. And eventually I heard a noise of tanks coming and I went back out in the street and there's a whole row coming down. I mean, there must have been 30, 40 tanks in a row. And I'm thinking, well, this is a nice geometrical design, you know, of all these tanks compressed. And I had a 400 millimeter and I thought as soon as it comes right by me, I'll have this incredible shot of all these tanks compressed coming down the Chang'an Boulevard. So I'm ready to get this picture. And all of a sudden, this guy walks out in front of the street with shopping bags and he's waving them. And I'm, I'm saying, this guy's going to screw up my composition. And uh, Kirk's saying, they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. And, and I'm just assuming they're going to kill him. So I'm just leaning over the balcony waiting for the exact instant he gets shot. Sort of like the Eddie Adams shot, you know, the minute that guy got shot. I was going to get the minute this guy got shot. I mean, there's nothing I could do about it. So I'm going to have to get it. I'm thinking this guy, you know, it's crazy. Well, they don't do anything. And he's just standing there and he's looking, you know, he's waving and yelling at him. And, and I'm thinking this is too far away. You know, I need something closer. And I look at the bed and there's my teleconverter, which would double the focal length to 800 millimeter. So the big question is, do you gamble it? 
Do you try to get a picture, you know, the grainy photo, or do you want to get a better shot and you go for it? Well, I went for it. And I went to the bed, put the teleconverter on. And while I was doing that, he was actually climbing up on top of the the tank. And uh, he opened the turret up and he was yelling at him, all kinds of stuff. So he came back down and made a final stand. And that was my picture. Now, there's three other photographers that have this picture. Charlie Cole, who just passed away. Stuart Franklin from Magnum. Arthur Son, who was a Reuters photographer out of Bangkok. I used to work, uh, we used to work on the stories together all the time, but I didn't know it at the time. I thought I was the only guy who had it. And so my picture, their picture is more of a picture of defiance. So, okay. They're holding the bags very sternly. He's holding it, you know, in defiance. And my picture is more of a Gandhi stance where he's just kind of hanging there with his bags. Like I ain't going anywhere. I'm just going to stay here passively. So they, some people from the crowd came and swept, swept the guy away. Some say he was rescued by bystanders. Some people think it was secret police. Nobody really knows for sure. But anyway, they took him off. I came back in and sat, dex, I sat down on a chair next to the window. And I just I thought, man, I blew it. I blew it. Kirk said, did you get it? Did you get it? Did you get the photo? And I said, I don't know. I don't think so. And then, but something inside of me, I swear, I don't know why, I just had a feeling one came out. So I asked Kirk if he could do me a favor and try to get the film back to the AP office because I didn't want to go out. If I'd have gone out, um, I might have been caught as a journalist. If they catch him, he's just basically well, he still took a risk because they catch him with a lot of film. You know, he could have gotten into serious trouble. Well, he disappeared for about five hours, and he but he couldn't find the AP office, which was in the diplomatic compound. So he ended up going to the U.S. Embassy, which is really a smart move. And he asked them, that they, he, he said, this is very important. Can you get this to the Associated Press? It's a very important film. And thankfully, the, um, the, the American Embassy did get it to AP. So they ran that picture. And I guess it was sharp enough because the next day when I came into the office, it was unbelievable. There was congratulations from all around the bureaus. So, uh, front page and newspaper liberation wanted exclusive interview. Life magazine wanted it for a double truck spread. Um, president of AP, Lou Bacardi congratulated me. All the bureaus were congratulated me. Uh, it was just insane. The amount of attention that I got on that thing. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, how big a deal it was. It, it didn't happen until years later when it finally settled in. Why do, why do you think Kirk helped you so much, even risked his, his own well, well-being well and safety for a stranger? You know, Kirk was a good guy, and I think he knew what was going on. Actually, Kirk was with his one of his teachers, I believe, and they the two of them were actually reporting the news for the L.A. Times. I mean, the L.A. Times was, you know, asking for their help, and they were kind of a, keeping an eye out on the news events going on. So he was already in journalist mode when uh, when I arrived. And I think he he probably thought it was cool. He thought it was the right thing to do. And uh, and so he's a he was a great help. And uh, frankly, I never would have gotten the picture if it wasn't for him. But the fun thing about it is that years later, um, I got an email from him. It came out of nowhere. And he said, hey, Jeff, I don't know if you remember me, but I was the guy who smuggled your tank man photo in my underwear. To wrap up our conversation, I asked Jeff how he thinks journalism has changed since his time in the industry. 
we talked about politics, censorship, and why you should listen to both sides. As a journalist, you have to be neutral and unbiased. You can't be political. You know, it's a noble profession. And I wanted to get into the profession because I was in the search of truth, you know, and I, I wanted to report some of the injustices in the world. And now you have to realize that uh, the big media uh, and the techs, you know, they're, they're left-wing media. They have a political narrative. And journalism is not supposed to be political. Now, the right is the same way. They have their, their, they have their political leanings as well. But the point is, journalism is supposed to be neutral and unbiased. End of story. How does that politicization um, or that partisanship affect photojournalism? Does that mean just only taking photos of one thing and leaving out the context? Like, how, do, how does that impact photography? I, I, I think the first time I saw politics involved in photography was when I was at a previous newspaper. And I took a picture of Al Gore. He had arrived in uh, Hawaii and uh, it was at a school. So you had all these kids sitting on bleachers. OK, they were all sitting there listening to Al Gore's speech. And I had this picture. And I knew it was going to happen. I just knew it. I planned for it. I had my depth of field closed up all the way so that it was sharp. And I had it on Gore talking. And all the kids were in the background. And all of a sudden, I got the picture. Kids were yawning. Their mouths were open. Half of them were falling asleep. So all you had was these gore looking all important, you know, standing there. And all these kids falling asleep, bored, yawning, the whole thing. Fantastic photo. But we were a left-wing newspaper. And they refused to run the picture. So I ended up going to the National Choir and gave it to them. And they ran it with a headline that Gore's a gore. Gore's a bore was their headline. But yet that's the first time I started seeing and noticing censorship on a newspaper. And uh, now it's just beyond belief, the, the censorship that's going on right now. It's, uh, it's, it's just shocking. So it's, uh, there's been big changes. And um, there's a lot of incredible journalism on alternative uh, media sites, podcasts that are actually reporting facts with documents, with videos. They've got evidence. They've got a lot of things that you're not seeing on the uh, left-wing media. And uh, you should read all media, left and right. And the problem is if you get into a mindset of your political uh, doctrine or whatever, you're never going to know the whole truth about everything. There's an old Babylonian saying that says that with wisdom comes a keener awareness of suffering. And if you don't know the truth, if you really don't have all the facts to compare, how are you going to know what the truth is? You know, so these are the things that have been happening and I don't know where it's all going to go, frankly. Yeah. I, um, with, with, you know, fake news and alternative facts and those kinds of phrases being thrown around, I think um, that can apply to, to the way people evaluate photos too. Right. So how, what kind of, what would you say, what would you say to an average consumer of the news an earnest consumer of the news who wants to look at both sides and, and find the truth? Um, but, you know, knows that a photo can be doctored, a photo can be photoshopped, can be edited, you know, taken out of context. What would you say to that person? It's, it's so easy now to fake photos and videos. But they've also got incredible equipment now that can actually spot fake stuff. So the technology goes both ways. You know, they can fake things really well, but they can also find the fakes really well. But, you know, we've seen through time where some journalists just got bored. There was one guy for the L.A. Times, I think. Um, there was, um, I don't know where he was. I don't know if he was in Iraq or some Asian country and he doctored some photo and he, and he put it out and he got caught for it. And, uh, 
and it was stupid. And he admitted it was dumb, and uh, it was just he got bored, and he just thought, I can move this a little bit here, and it won't make a di- difference. You have to be, um, you have to be uh, true to yourself on being, uh, report the facts as they are, and not uh, try to play games and manipulate. And uh, um, all I'm saying is maybe I'm old school, but I, I believe in looking, searching for the truth. I walked away from my conversation with Jeff with a sense of admiration. I was amazed that a person would go to such lengths, even risking his own life, to get to the truth of a matter so he could tell it, or in Jeff's case, show it, to the world. Even while being self-aware of ulterior motives, like wanting a Pulitzer Prize out of it. And Jeff was a finalist for one, the 1990 Pulitzer Prize in Spot News Photography. He didn't win it. That honor went to the staff of the Tribune, based in Oakland, California, for their photographs of the aftermath of the October 17, 1989 Bay Area earthquake. But Pulitzer or not, Tank Man changed things. Media coverage of the Tiananmen Square protests led to condemnation from around the world of how the Chinese government handled them. And to this day, the Chinese government still censors the Tank Man photo. But the picture immortalized that anonymous man wearing a white shirt and black pants, carrying a bag in his hand, just standing there in the street in defiance. Wherever he is, whatever happened to him, we'll all remember him forever. Thanks again for listening and supporting the podcast. If you enjoyed that conversation with Jeff, share it with someone you know, and tune in every other Sunday for new episodes. As always, this has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.